0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be back. If you have a Bible, open it, please, to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to pick up in verse 31 and read through the end of the chapter in just a moment. As I mentioned, it's good to be back. Jennifer and I and Kristen went to Uganda last week, and we're with Pastor Raphael and King Jesus Church, and they send their greetings to you and their love to you, and we just had a wonderful time there. The church is growing, and the school is doing well, and our team that was there in June was a tremendous blessing to the church, and it was great to be with these pastors that we've been with the last four or five years that come to this pastor's conference and see them. and uh, the Lord is doing a, a, a neat work there in the city of Busega and we're part of that, and we're, we're, just, we're just, I'm so thankful, and uh, Raphael and his wife, Alan, send their love to you. This morning, we're finishing up this brief little series in the summer in July that we've been looking at, Jesus on the Christian life, and next week, I'm looking forward to getting back into Romans, so we're going to pick back up into Romans chapter 9 one of the most difficult chapters in in all of the bible so it'll be kind of a a a nice gentle uh, entry back into Romans so start reading Romans 9 uh, this week if you would but this morning we're finishing up this look at Jesus on the Christian life and we started looking at Jesus and what he has to say about salvation and then Jesus and sanctification and Jesus and church life and last week Tyler preached an excellent message on Jesus on missions And this week we're looking at Jesus on eternity, what the end of all things is. And so for that, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus, at the end of his earthly life, soon before his crucifixion, gives this parable about what the end of the age will look like and what will happen on that day. Before I read that, though, to to orient us to this text, uh, I, I want you to think about this little phenomenon that I had when I was in Uganda, they, they drive on the other side of the street in Uganda. They were a British colony, and so everything is on what we would think of as the wrong side of the street, and the steering wheel isn't on the left, it's on the right. And so you have to kind of reprogram yourself to orient yourself to the way things are when you're on the streets. And I can remember almost every time we would get in Pastor Raphael's car, I would walk over to the, uh, to the passenger side, which was actually the driver's side, and I wouldn't be paying attention. I'd be walking with him, and he's like, what, what, you, you want to drive? or what? I mean, what, what are you doing? You're on the other side. And I'd have to go over to the other side, and then... When you're driving on these streets in Uganda and you're talking and not paying attention and y- your mind is just tricking yourself because you're on the wrong side of the road and you see somebody coming in here, I'm like ducking in the passenger side, and, but in reality, we were on the right side of the road. You have to reprogram your brain just to not flinch every time a car pulls out in front of you. Well, likewise, when we're thinking about eternity, you have to we particularly, I think, have to reprogram our brains. We live in a culture that probably more than any other is absorbed with the here and now. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of anthem of this generation. Hashtag YOLO. You only live once, which is true in a spiritual sense, but I don't think that's what they mean by that hashtag. It means there's no really thing after this, so just do all that you can now. We're used to driving on one side of the street, but the Bible puts us on the other side of the street when Jesus talks about the final judgment and eternity. So let me read Jesus's words in in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. Friends, we're going to talk about heaven and hell today, and these are sobering words. This is This is a massive truth, and let's confess that we're not programmed to think like this by nature, so we need the Holy Spirit's help. Let me read. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Well, I have three truths that I want us to think about from this text. And then in two responses. But before I do that, before we get into that, let me, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. <clears throat> Father, we sang just a moment ago that it is your pleasure for you to be our joy. Make, make that more true in my life. As a result of our time looking at your word being transformed by Your Spirit that wrote Your Word, that works with Your Word in Your people and amongst those whom You are calling to Yourself. Transform us more into the image of Christ. Conquer every rebel power that still rages war in our hearts. Convince our hearts at last as we just sang, and come and tell us of all that we have in you. Reprogram our hearts from this temporary earthly mindset to an eternal mindset. Help us to see these things in clarity, in HD. Help us, help us to have crystal vision and what this text is saying to us. May it be like ammonia in our nostrils as we are punch drunk with this world. Wake us up, Lord, and make us eternally minded people. And let that produce in us a gravity, a humility, a sincerity, and an unshakable joy and confidence. Or do these things, I pray, for the good of your people, for the salvation of any in this room that you are drawing to faith, for the glory of your name, I pray. These things, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's much in this text, and rather than a thorough exposition of this text, I want us to just look at three truths in the context of looking at eternity. And then I think two responses for us from this, this text. The first truth is this, and these truths I think are, are very simple. Uh, if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you, you notice that, that most of the things we talk about are very simple. Hopefully they're, they're very simple. But this one is simple and clear and true and serious, and it's this. Judgment is certain for all people everywhere. That's the first thing I see in this text, that judgment is certain for all people everywhere. Look at verses 31, 32, and 33, again, of our, of our main text. Jesus is, is offering this, this parable, this, this, this description of the end of the age, and he's referring to himself when he says, the Son of Man comes in, when he comes in his glory, all the angels will be with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered All the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. There are only two types of people described in this text the sheep and the goats. And it's a description of all the peoples in all the earth, all the nations, everybody, everyone, everywhere will stand before the Lord. That's the text that Robert read from us from Philippians chapter 2, that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, either willingly or under compulsion. Everyone, everywhere will stand before the Lord. In fact, this is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9. He says, no one escapes this day. Verse 27 of Hebrews 9, he says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus, in this, in this scene in Matthew 25, here in Hebrews, is pictured as this righteous, separating judge. Judge. And this is what Jesus says about Himself and why he, why he came of the many aspects and facets of this beautiful diamond of the gospel and why Jesus came. One that we don't often think about is that Jesus came to judge. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 9 towards the end of this beautiful story of Jesus healing a blind man who became who who gained his sight through Jesus. And there were these seeing Pharisees around this blind man who were actually spiritually blind. And there's this kind of paradox there in this story where this blind man, in his humility, sees, and these seeing religious leaders in their arrogance are actually blind. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 39. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now let's just pause here and contrast this clear description of this aspect of Jesus' ministry as judge with our cultural notions and misconceptions misconceptions of Jesus as as a kind of soft, feather-haired, blue-eyed, Andy Gibb looking, child-loving, soft, no standards, no judgment, just come unto me. And there's aspects of truth to that. Come unto me, Jesus, as all you who are heavy laden, but under his terms. And this is the picture here, is that Jesus is not just this incarnate, merciful, gracious Jesus, but he's also this righteous judge. And there are, I just want us to take this in. Friends, this is not conceptually difficult for us to see in the text, but it is often spiritually difficult for us to handle because we are drunk on the spirit of our age. There are no exceptions. There's no Pacific Island or there's no remote place. There's nobody that hasn't heard the gospel. There's no people group. There's, no, there's nobody. There's nobody. There are only two types of people in this text. The sheep and the goats. There's no loophole. There's no person. There's no innocent, ignorant people out there. And that's the the clear witness of Scripture. That's what we we went over in Romans. Romans chapter 1. In fact, let me me flip to Romans 1 and read. Just as a reminder, we've been in Romans. I know this was a year and a half ago when we were in Romans 1, but you remember it, right? It was just yesterday. (laughs) Romans 1. Listen to this. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, that's all humanity, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God, honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I think verse 25 is a description of fallen human culture that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then flip over to Romans chapter 3 where Paul summarizes his argument about the fallenness of mankind and the natural state of every human being. And he says in Romans 3 verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then we read a few verses down in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, do we see this is that judgment is certain. Judgment is certain for all people everywhere. That, that's the natural state of mankind, and that's the picture at the beginning of this scene that Jesus paints for us in Matthew chapter 25. Now, we're going to talk about, in a little bit, about judgment for the Christian, but get this, that there's, there's you know, don't we categorize, I, I do this, I mean, I am, I am actually a professional Christian, <laughs> I'm a pastor, and I should know better, <laughs> but don't we just have these subcategories in our minds? of, well, these are the good people, my church folks. These are the really wicked people. And this is just kind of this nebulous middle ground of people who I don't have really any urgency about who are just kind of decent folks. To friends, shouldn't we know better? This text is wrecking our categories. That's the point I'm trying to make right now. There are only two types of people in the world, sheeps or goats. There's not black people or white people, rich people or poor people. There's not intelligent people or unintelligent people. There's not pretty people or ugly people. There's, there's, there's only two types of people in the world that really matter. And all these little temporary designations will not matter on that day. That's, that's the picture here in Matthew chapter 25. That's the gravity. That's the seriousness. Jesus is not playing tiddlywinks in this scene. But, 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 but don't we so often? That's truth number one. Judgment is certain for all people everywhere. Which leads me to the second truth that I see in this text is that how we live now matters for eternity. I think that's the clear implication. We could could go into, I think, much deeper detail in this scene that Jesus paints for us in Matthew 25 about how we are to treat one another and the implications of the gospel and the lordship of Christ on the life of a Christian, where he has this picture of how those that are his people it produces in them a kind of fruit bearing love for others and those that are not his people are self-serving and are cast away from his his presence forever friends this is not to say don't misread this this is not to say that we are saved by our works jesus is not saying to the sheep who are those that are, live with him forever that you are with me forever because you have treated these people that are least of mine in this way. He's saying that you do these things because I have made you one of my sheep. That's the balance of the message of the gospel for the rest of Scripture. It's the same thing that James is saying in in James chapter 2. Let me go to James chapter 2 and read what this picture of our life should look like if we are truly made alive and regenerated by God. He says in James 2 verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is not disagreeing with Paul in the gospel that we've been reading in Romans. It says we're saved by grace and not works. He's saying that true grace will produce works. This is the way the reformers put it back in the protestant reformation in the 1500s they said that we are saved listen to this sentence they said that we are saved by faith alone in christ alone obviously we're saved by faith alone but the faith that saves is not alone meaning it's accompanied, it's borne out, it's, it's evidenced, it's manifested, it's displayed by works. And that's what Jesus is, is saying here, is that true salvation proves itself. It bears fruit. Love for God must bend out into love for people. And we, we, we need to hear this in a religious age, in a religious culture, where we think that we're okay with God just because we have a confession on our mouth. And that's absolutely not the case here in this scene that Jesus is is presenting as all people are standing before Him. How we live now matters for eternity. In fact, how we live now is actually a kind of fruit-bearing, it's a a kind of deposit of, of what eternity will be and where we will be in eternity. How we live now matters. And then, That leads us to the third truth, which I think is is the the point of this text that I want us to, to dwell on, and it is this, that every person, every person will spend eternity either with God in heaven or separated from him in hell. That's what verse 46 says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's no other option. There's no other middle ground. There's, this, is, this, this scene that Jesus paints for us is exceedingly clear. There are only two options, destinations, for every human soul. Friends, this is not conceptually difficult to see. But we so often go to the wrong side of the car, don't we? We need to reprogram ourselves to see life and eternity and reality through a scriptural lens. So what does the Bible say about this place called heaven? Just, just, just to encourage us, let me read to you from Revelation chapter 21. We could spend a whole series of messages just thinking about eternity in heaven for those that are in Christ. Listen to what John, Jesus' disciple, says in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to verse 4. This is one of the most beautiful descriptions of eternity for the Christian in the whole Bible. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. A couple years ago I was mowing my backyard and I was listening to this sermon by this man who was basically giving a sermon on heaven and in his sermon he was reading large chunks of a sermon from Jonathan Edwards the great American theologian in the 1700s on a sermon that Edwards preached on Heaven, and that sermon was called Heaven, a World of Love. And Edwards's meditations on heaven, as I was mowing the lawn, riding my lawnmower, were making me weep because it was so filled with joy. He was saying that, uh, Edwards was postulating that because God is infinitely glorious, and because there's no end to Him to be enjoyed, that in heaven for the christian each new day will be a greater enjoyment of god's ever increasing glory. And so it's like each successive day in heaven is just another day that just keeps getting better. And then and then this this was really good because i think i was maybe mad at somebody at the time or something or i was feeling I was just, you know, getting worked on in my sanctification. Edwards talked about the varying degrees of reward that the Bible speaks about amongst Christians. And I've always kind of wondered about that. What's what's going on there? How will we feel about that? And Edwards Edwards says that, that, that even think about this, that when you are in heaven and you realize, if we do realize, whatever that our our brother or sister has more reward for us, because we are free from the vestiges and residue of sin, the fact that our brother or sister has greater reward than us will actually be an opportunity for pleasure for us, because now we will be free to be happy for them, because they're happier in Christ, and so it will actually be good for us. Do you see that? And so, we to imagine that existence that you will be so free of everything that hinders you that when somebody else has more than you, you will, that will be an opportunity for you to have more joy. Uh, I want that. Don't you? Uh, and that's eternity for those that are in. Christ. It's not floating around on a cloud with a robe and wings and a harp. It's a real existence. Read 1 Corinthians 15 where Jesus talks about the resurrected Christian who will be like him. We will have flesh. We will be real. It will be glorified. We will be like him, 1 John, as he is because we will be with him and it will be a world of ever-increasing joy. But what does Jesus say about hell? Because remember, there are only two places. He says just a few few verses in the Gospels where Jesus mentions hell. Matthew 5, verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Matthew 18 again. Jesus says, verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Matthew 10, verse 26, Jesus says, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Listen to verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And finally, Mark 9, this, this woeful description of eternity for goats, for people who are not in Christ Jesus says in verse 47 of Mark 9, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell. And listen to how he describes it in verse 48 where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. <sighs> now, a couple things. When we read things like that, remember, we need to be reprogrammed. First question that many people in the modern age have is, they say, oh, this is just some sort of primeval, medieval description. It's not really, I mean, this, is, this, this can't really be true. Listen to what John Calvin, the great reformer, said about these descriptions of hell and whether or not they are literal or not or figurative. This is what he says. Now, because no description can deal adequately with the gravity of God's vengeance against the wicked, their torments and tortures are figuratively expressed to us by physical things, that is, by darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, an undying worm gnawing at the heart. Listen to this last sentence. By such expressions, the Holy Spirit certainly intended to confound all our senses with dread. So, I, I, literal, figurative, I don't know. The point that I think Calvin is rightly showing us is that the description of the afterlife apart from Christ is meant to confound our senses with dread. With dread. And this brings me to, to the next question is, and this is what the world thinks when they look at what Christians believe about God's word. They say, "Oh, hell is, hell is unjust. How can a merciful God, how can a merciful God punish somebody like that for eternity? That just seems ridiculous." Have you count encountered that objection? And maybe maybe there's part of that objection that still is sort of rambling around in your heart. Let me give you two responses to that idea that hell. Is somehow unjust or unfair. Friends, when I hear that, I try and get the person to see, or I try and get my own heart to see, that this, this, when we look at hell, it should show us how wicked sin actually is. We don't instinctively think this way. We think that we are basically decent, we're the center of the universe. Yeah, maybe we've messed up some things, but we're kind of close to moral centrality, neutralness. And somehow it's not that bad. Because the center of our universe is ourselves and not the holiness of God. We, we, we rotate around ourselves rather than rotating around God. And that type of man-centered life will never allow us to see the holiness of God and the wickedness of even my relatively minor sin compared to other people. How relatively, it will, it will never, never compute in my mind. Do you see that? When we are the center, we can't see the blazing glory of God. But when we see the glory of God, sin finds its gravity in that. And so when a person says that, or even when I feel that in my own heart as I consider the eternal separation of a person apart from Christ, I need to reorient my heart to realize this is the dreadfulness of hell is a picture of the wickedness of the creature's rebellion against the goodness of God. And friends, this is not fundamental hellfire brimstone preaching. This is just the Bible. And the second response I would have is when we see how wicked sin is, it just shows us how gracious, how gracious the cross is. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins. The infinitely holy Son of God became sin for us on the cross. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel. Take everything that we're reading about judgment, take everything that we're reading about hell, and think about the cross. And think about what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, where it says that Jesus became sin for us. He bore our sins. So the wrath of God is, port friends. this is the heart of the gospel itself. We are sinners. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We all deserve the wrath of God. And Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, Lays down his infinitely holy, obedient life on the cross and bears the wrath of God, the just wrath of God, which sentence is eternal separation and hell forever for us. But because Jesus is infinitely holy, he has enough holiness to absorb the eternal punishment that should have been ours, and he satisfies it. He extinguishes it. Spurgeon says he drinks damnation dry. On the cross. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does for the hell that you and I deserve. And we see the justice of God. Not the unjustness of God, but the justice of God on the cross. God has not fudged at all. His holiness is intact. You know, in any parental relationship, um, any mom and dad, there's always like a, a parent that has standards. And then another one who's, standards are a little lower, like a mature parent, usually the mom, (laughs) and an immature parent, usually the dad, right? I mean, I I don't know if I'm speaking from personal experience or not, but you know, you just, and the children always know the, the parent that will just kind of fudge. The glory of the gospel is that God never fudges on His standard, and that's actually for the good of the creature because if God were to fudge on His standard, He wouldn't have a standard anymore, would He? And on the cross, justice and mercy meet and they kiss, and it's the grace of the gospel for those that are in Christ. And what hangs in the balance is union with Christ forever where there's no tear, where there's no sickness, where there's no pain, where there's ever-increasing joy or where there is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched of ever-increasing dread. That's what hangs in the balance. And for people in this room, some of you maybe, that hangs in the balance. What makes the difference? What's the difference between the sheep and the goats? That difference alone is Christ. Not whether you grew up in church. Not whether or not you have any doctrinal understanding. The difference is Christ who alone can resurrect the dead. That's the difference between the sheep and the goats. Christ comes and makes you alive. Friends, that life is being offered to you right now. And if you have that life, Christ is reorienting us and reminding us of all that this life entails as we read this text so that we might have an eternal focus. Which leads me to these two responses that I think we should have from this and it's the first one is this is that eternity should motivate us to live eternally focused lives now now this is what jesus says in 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 matthew chapter 6 Matthew chapter six, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Oh, my heart needs to hear this, friends. If this is the case, if that's true, then what does the opinion of man mean in comparison to eternity? If I have all that there is to have in Christ, then what does it matter if these 70 or 80 years do not go as planned? Friends, we need this. We need this. eternal. We are people that are addicted to social media and the opinion of others, and we scurry around like little lab rats on crack seeking the approval of man. And the only cure for that, for the soul, is to lift up our eyes and see the blessed promise of heaven for those that are in Christ. Because another, another job, another, another car, another whatever little trinket, it will not satisfy. Friends, I'm, I'm preaching to myself right now. I need, to, I need this truth More. God of ages past, we sing, convince my heart at last. Come tell me of all that I have in you. Right now, Holy Spirit, come and tell us. Remind us afresh of all that we have in you. Lord, please, please do this. Heaven hangs in the balance for someone's soul in here this morning. God of ages past, convince our hearts at last. And the second response should be this, that eternity should motivate us to share the gospel with unbelievers. Shouldn't it? Listen, listen to what Jesus has seen that Jesus paints in Luke chapter 16 in this parable of this rich man and, and Lazarus. This is not the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead in John 11. It's just a character in this parable that Jesus is teaching here, and he says in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, hashtag YOLO, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the rich guy had it good for these 80 years, and Lazarus had it pretty bad. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom. I think that's just another way of saying heaven, to be with the righteous. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades... And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In other words, there's a chasm fixed between heaven and hell. And there's no redos. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. So what this rich man is asking, he's asking Again, this is not the way things, think. This is just a parable that Jesus is offering. We don't press every detail into reality. But this rich man, Lazarus, is pleading that Lazarus, this rich man is pleading that Lazarus would come out of heaven to go back and evangelize his family so that they wouldn't suffer the same anguish. For I have five brothers so that, that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the word of God. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Friends, that's a dreadful story. That's a dreadful story about the anguish of living your best life now. Now and forsaking the life to come. And this should sober up Christians. This should show, sober us up as a church. This should make us more gracious with one another. This should, this should make us more missions oriented. As Tyler preached last week, this should make us so selfless because what hangs in the balance is a world of ever-increasing joy or a world of never-ending torment. I end with this beautiful quote from Spurgeon. He preached this sermon back in the late 1800s. He says this, Meet me in heaven. Do not go down to hell. There is no coming back from that abode of misery. Why do you wish to enter the way of death when heaven's gate is open before you? Do not refuse the free pardon, the full salvation which Jesus grants to all who trust in him. Do not hesitate and delay. You've had enough of resolving. Come to action. Believe in Jesus now with full and immediate decision. Take with you words. Come unto your Lord this day, even this day. Remember, O soul, it may be now or never with you. Let it be now. It would be horrible if it would be never. Again, I charge you, meet me in heaven. Friends, that's the Christian's cry to the world. My cry to my own heart is lift up your eyes and live for heaven. Let's pray. O God of ages past, convince our hearts at last. Come tell us of all that we have in you. For my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, lift up our eyes and let us live leaning forward into eternity. Reprogram our hearts to drive on the heavenly side of the road. And for my friends in this room who do not yet know you, Lord, would they meet you in heaven? Would they turn from their sin? Would they realize that Would you save some by fear, as Jude says, and would you wake them from their slumber? And would they not go down to that miserable abode? And would they trust in Jesus? Would you give them the thing that you require of them? Would you make their hearts alive? Would you make Jesus irresistible to them? Would he become... Altogether lovely, would he overtake hard hearts and turn them into hearts of flesh so that they can believe and trust in him and meet him in heaven, a place of ever-increasing joy. Do this, I pray, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name.